do you think you can be an inspirational leader and be more present without all the the polish? And she would challenge me on that and say, yeah, but one of your values is humility, isn't it? And I'd be like, yeah, it is. She said, well, if one of your values is humility, you have to own that and wear it. You have to accept some humility decisions. And so the sports cars went, the boat goes, the three-bedroom penthouse goes, and I just started feeling better. I think I had a better response and connectivity with my staff. I didn't feel like I was under attack by the public now because now I was just being more humble. I attracted better things into my life. I had less stress and things were on the up. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. It's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode where I am talking to real estate royalty. Well, he wouldn't like me to say that because he's a really humble guy, but I think real estate royalty, Ivan Bresic. Now, for those of you that aren't in real estate, you probably don't know who he is. For those of you that have been in the Australian real estate game for a while, you would definitely know the name Ivan. Now, Ivan and I came to contact through a mutual friend of mine that works for a firm that Ivan co-founded called Bresic Whitney, a premium boutique real estate house located in Sydney. They really focus on that city in eastern suburbs region, and they are super, super successful. So it's a funny story in regards to how I ended up meeting Ivan because I actually had an idea about starting to look for someone to interview within the real estate sector. Few reasons. Partly, I'm interested in sales, and obviously, real estate sales is interesting. It's impactful. It's high value. But there are some other things that really interested me around that selling environment. Not only the fact that it's high-value transactional sales, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of money, and there's a lot of everything tied up in a deal. But it is one of the few industries where agents are secured based on their perceived success. And a lot of that success is the car they drive, the suits they wear, and the lifestyles they live. And obviously that can present some challenges. So I was really interested to find an agent or someone that had been in the industry that kind of transcended that whole process from super hyper successful agent to kind of coming out as a bit of a sage on the other side. And I was introduced to Ivan, like I said, through a a mutual friend and hit it off. Ivan and I share a lot of ways of living. We both don't drink and we embrace a certain lifestyle. And I wanted to get him on the show to unpack his journey, how we went from a wild young agent to a very introspective, quite reserved and thoughtful and uh, a person that definitely lives a healthy life. So Ivan is currently residing in Austin, Texas. He sold out of the firm some time ago and he moved to America with his wife. He's currently a highly sought after mentor and coach. So he works with several, primarily, I believe, Australian agents in regards to coaching. He shares his theory on success and performance 
His programs are designed to accelerate agents and principals to reach a higher place in their career. Now, he started out in the real estate game at the age of 17 alongside the legendary John McGraw. Ivan demonstrated to himself to be a high achiever with a real winning mindset. And since his third year in real estate, when he sold 100 properties in one year, Ivan has maintained his success by combining his raw talent with an unwavering work ethic. So we dive into the origin story, the beginnings, you know, how he got into real estate, how he got successful within real estate, and how that started to push him towards certain ways of operating, certain ways of living that he didn't necessarily think was healthy, and how he ultimately decided to get out of a game that he was super, super successful in. And we talk about that because that's interesting and how he ultimately started to pivot into something in a way of living that felt much more congruent for him. Super interesting guy, very humble, very Australian in the sense of that humility. You can feel it. I felt it certainly in the conversation, but he is someone that anyone can learn from, particularly those that are high performing in a highly demanding arena where materialism is high, everyone's competing. And how do you do this without selling out, selling your soul and being healthy and maintaining a way of working and living that realigns to your values? Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Ivan. If you haven't already, check out the website at www.ugventures.co. It's a new website and everything that we are doing is there. And if you haven't already, please do rate this podcast. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. Peace. Ivan, welcome to the Ultra Habits Show, man. We have finally made it here. You're in Austin. I'm in Melbourne. Weathers are different. Times are different. But nevertheless, we got a show. We're here. Mate, good to see you. Thanks for having me along. Yeah, man. It was uh, it was great to get you on. You know, I spoke to to our mutual friend, Zach, and I was looking for someone to, to really get onto the show that had a focus in that high-level arena of, of real estate transactions, particularly someone that is evolved through that industry that has a different way of operating. So I got quite lucky. He was like, dude, I know somebody, and, and obviously he connected us. So so he, we, here we are. So we're, I want to dive in, Ivan, ultimately into your philosophy and how you, you coach and how you do things with the people that come and seek your help. But let's go into your backstory. So I read a bit about you. Is it true that you got into real estate at 17 years old? I did. Yeah, I did. I started straight out of school. Uh, do you, how much of that do you want to know? Because <laughs> if you, it, it, I want to know, I want to know everything. I want to know why and how. I'm going to keep it short because look, I, I don't personally think it's an amazing, exciting journey. I could imagine others may think that, but when you live it and you do it, it's kind of just what you do. Um, but look, I was a bit lost. I didn't know what to do after school. Uh, I went to a business school where I studied real estate. Part of that was I had to to do 80 hours of work experience. Luck or fate, I knew a receptionist working at a company called McGrath Partners at the time, which if you're in Sydney or even Australia, you would know McGrath today. And uh, Jay, you know, I started doing work experience there. It was fun. Uh, I was 
doing all the stuff at the bottom of the ladder, um, collecting, co- uh, getting the coffees, getting the milk. Back then we photocopied a lot. And uh, I enjoyed the work experience. I already enjoyed that. I struggled through the course at, uh, at the private college, McClay College down near Hyde Park. I got through. My father had a bad accident. At the end of that year, he got 80% of his body burnt, which was a really tough period for me and my family. Uh, and it grew me up a lot. Um, so our lives got sort of upended pretty quickly. Uh, and by the way, I wish that upon no one. And um, mate, I asked my mother, I said, Mum, do you want me to go to work or do you want me to help look after Dad's recovery and rehabilitation with you? She said, no, I think you should go to work. And uh, I was about to start a job in North Sydney and just as I was about to start, McGrath Partners, who I'd completed lots of work experience for that year, said, we've got a leasing role. So in I went, Oxford Street, Paddington, um, and you know worked my way up through my career starting there in Paddington, Arjo. I, Ivan, do you come from an immigrant family? Like, yes. It, what yeah. were your parents born in Australia, or, or they... yeah, no, both parents are Croatian and both immigrated to Australia, and they met in Sydney along with you know at that time there was a lot of Greeks, Italians, and Yugoslavs moving, like many others, I guess, to Australia. So, uh, yeah, Croatian parents went to a private school, didn't really enjoy school. I liked the competitiveness um, and the friendships. But I'd never really, uh, you know, school wasn't really my thing. So I had limited options. When you come out of school and you're not very good at it, there's a lot of pressure put on on these kids. Uh, but I failed the HSC and I really had no idea what I was going to do. A careers advisor actually said to me, Ivan, you know, maybe hospitality or real estate. And I guess I was just lucky that it was a private college and mum and dad supported me through that. And, you know, call it luck or fate, McGrath Partners was starting to grow. John McGrath for many Many people would know is you know was a real estate celebrity, uh, and so working in his company at that stage was really fun. Like I was next to John most work experience days. So after Dad's accident, I go in and I start leasing. Um, that first twelve months was really tough, but the home life was pretty depressing, mate. Like Dad's burnt, trying to learn how to walk again doesn't look very good. Uh, He's in intensive care, then he's moved to rehabilitation and, you know, it was tough. Like, it, it's tough. Uh, but I think it also um, grew me up, but also gave me no other choice but to carry on and have some grit. Uh, and I think no matter how hard it got in those early days work-wise, it was always better. That was always better than going to a hospital. And that's what, you know... You know what it's like. You've been to a hospital. Like you walk out of a hospital, the HA, and you're like, you have a different appreciation for life. Every time you go visit someone in hospital, you're like, shit. Anyway, reflecting back on on your on your childhood, what would you say you learned from your mom and dad? Mm. Like, how did that? How, how how have they shaped or influenced you? If you were to reflect on. And I think, I actually think about that a lot. I mean, I became a father 10 months, 11 months ago for the first time. Uh, and we're a very, we're a super close family, which I'm very grateful for. So I actually reflect on that all the time. But I, I think, look, dad was very hardworking immigrant. And if he wasn't at work, it was family. So for him, he had two things in life, work, family, that's it. So I think I learned that from him. Um, 
rightly or wrongly. I'm sure there's some negatives that came with that. Uh, for mum, I think, you know, mum really was everything to us because she grew us up. She was always at our sports games, took us to school. Uh, and now being a parent, you see just how what, what our parents did for us or certainly what my parents did for, for, for me. We've, we struggled to bring up a 10-month. Mum had three of them and it was a country that, it was her second country, not her first. Um, so I think, you know, we were around love. I, I'd say we had a good childhood. Like they gave us what we wanted. It was middle class. They took, they sent us to private schools. There was love. I've always felt very loved by mum and dad and still do it. I I like to ask people that question, particularly people that have an immigrant background. And I also, too, reflect on how difficult it was for parents, particularly growing up in the 80s. I think one of the things, you know, I talk to my mom about it often. She says that her view is that the parents of today, us, were much more proactive. And in many ways, we try to do and be all things where kind of when we were growing up, I think we self-managed a little bit more and we, our, our parents just kind of got on with it and, and dealt with it. And maybe there was a better sense of community and support for them in that way, which we may not have today because we're so dispersed, but it is something that I too, uh, reflect on as well. I've been, so your parents were obviously immigrants. Yeah, they were. Yeah, we were immigrants to the United States and uh, well, to Australia first. And uh, I was born in Australia. We were in the Western suburbs. And then dad went to the United States to start a cleaning company with his brother. And while he was there, mom looked after me and my brothers and on her own, right? And we were kind of babysit, sat by like the Maltese old couple in the unit. You know, like things like would never happen today, right? Like we were in punch bowl or lakemba or something and mom would just leave us with because there was a trust factor particularly in those days and you know and there weren't daycares and you just kind of got on with it so i think similar similar situation to you you know in in, in the sense of that era interesting interesting yeah so you you go to mcgraw and like did you grow up in the eastern suburbs or were you in uh, like where did you grow up uh, we grew up on the North Shore in a place called Forestville, which is kind of between Chatsworth and Manly. So yeah, we, we went, my sisters went to school yeah. in North Sydney. I went to school in North Sydney and went to Joey's in Hunters Hill, which was, in hindsight, a good experience, even though it's cool. the, you know, the learning part. Um, so I think the East was like completely wild to me because, uh, yeah, I'm a good job. Boarding school, like I hadn't been exposed to the gay and lesbian community. I'd been exposed to even different religions, like Jewish. I'd not, like, and a few of my first friends in Eastern suburbs were Jewish. I had had very little knowledge about what the Jewish religion was about until I was 18. Um, so you sort of coming from a boarding school, you were very shielded. And, uh, but at the same time, it was exciting. Like I was learning a lot. That's where the parties were at that age. And, that's where the glitz and glamour was. And um, so, you know, I kind of just found myself there. It was pretty exciting, I must say. So you're now there. Why do you think retrospectively McGraw and that agency was so successful in creating just absolute guns? Like what was the secret sauce there? Uh, John, what were you guys doing? I would say, John, I, you have to put it down to, to my former my former boss. Uh, he was very dedicated. 
and still is even today. Um, he was very dedicated. He went overseas for inspiration. He was innovative. Uh, you know, he just did things differently. You know, back then, every real estate agency had a shop front window and that's where you advertised your listings back then uh, or in the newspaper. John had amazing advertising. John had really beautiful real estate offices that, you know, didn't have a shop front. John had, uh, you know, he was young himself. I think he was 30 when I started working for him and he was already starting to get a pretty decent public profile. Uh, so he was kind of changing and uh, what real estate and selling real estate. He was really, he had a big impact on how that was, uh, you know, evolving. And he, and he kind of moved the dial, RJ, a lot, you know, very quickly from the traditional method with real estate agents being 40, 50, 60 and untrustworthy to placing trust in agents who are now 22 years old or 25 or 32 and making sure that process is a better experience or we're trying to make that a better experience than when you buy a car or walk into a six-star hotel. That's basically what John was, you know, working towards and encouraging. Uh, so I think he did a really good job of that. He, therefore, he attracted really good people. He trained really good people. He did it. And he just, the thing just grew and it grew and grew and grew. I, I spent about four and a half years there in total, five years. So from sort of 17 and a half, including work experience, I spent about, you know, the better part of five years there. But what a great apprenticeship I had. I think I was just lucky, bit of fate, you know. What, did you guys work hard and play hard? Like what were your habits like in terms of what kind of habits were you starting to develop at that point in your life and your career? I mean, you're around success, successful people. Like what's going on there? Um, well, you got to remember in real estate, there's usually about a five-year apprenticeship like most things. So you're not actually making much money in the first five years. You feel like you are. You're around it, but you're not. <laughs> so I was, I mean, in my first 12 months, I was still, mum was helping me pay my rent. Um, I think I was earning 450 bucks a week. Uh, you know, you're on a budget. Um, you, you might start to have some leasing commissions, but they, they don't pay much. But it was really about a year and a half, two years in RJ, where one of the youngest, best prospects at the business, a guy called Shannon Whitney, who was 21, 22. And back then, no one was selling real estate at 21, 22. Shannon would have been the youngest. And he actually approached me in leasing and said, do you want to come and work with me and my team? And remember too, that John had initiated this idea of strong real estate agents having a team. Before that, it had never happened. And John found that in the US um, because he traveled the US and he saw that there were, you know, high profile agents using teams. So I work, I took that opportunity. I worked, you know, uh, I, 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 I like Shannon. We met a few times. I wanted to get into sales. Uh, I did six, I did the back end of 1998 with Shannon last six months. And, you know, he taught me a lot. We worked damn hard. We played a bit on weekends for sure because we were young, 19. Um, but that second full year, RJ, Shannon and I sold 120 properties together with a personal assistant. And back then that was unheard of. That would be like selling 200 today. Um, around King's Cross, Surrey Hills, Darlinghurst for people who know it. And it was exciting. Um, we bonded. Uh, and it was Shannon who actually said to me, mate, you're ready to be an agent on your own. You don't need me. Uh, and so in 2000, I embarked on my own sales career. 
uh, with with his support, with John's support, and with really good mentors around. Uh, in my first year, I think I sold 26. In my second year, I sold 49 and employed a full-time assistant. And in year three, which was 2002, I sold 99 properties. And at that stage, I had two junior agents and assistants. So excellence was taught to us or ingrained in us when you worked with John at that stage of the business. Excellent was really ingrained in, in a lot of his people. That's That was the expectation. That's how we were coached. That's how we were trained. That was the bar. And we worked for it. We worked really, really hard, but it was very enjoyable because now it was becoming rewarding. Mm. And with that teams element, you're you're kind of an organization can scale and become big yet stays tribal, right? You can maintain the the standards because of that kind of mentoring process and that cohesion that happens through the team ethos. Why do you think that that style didn't evolve here in Australia separate to McGraw? Like, is it cultural or just do you think people didn't know that that could be done or? Yeah, I think it was because real estate wasn't very evolved in the seventies and eighties. It was, you know, it was 40 year olds and 50 year olds. They put a, you know, like I said, it was advertised in a shop front window, you know, maybe the newspaper, it wasn't, it wasn't a very good experience, but you know, John moved the dial on the whole buying and selling experience based on what he saw. But what became more and more apparent was that some agents would do vastly better than other agents, just like any other industry, okay? So in order for those top-level, elite, high-performers, whatever you want to call it, in order for them to grow, they needed more hands, and John had John had actually worked that out. So one agent can only do so much no matter how good they are. But John figured out, but hang on, if this agent is so much better than the rest of them, why don't we give this agent more support so he can list and sell more? Um, so and that started back when I when I started. Um, and that just continued to grow and grow and grow. So this in the real estate industry, that term of a sales associate or junior. That started with McGrath 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, in the late 90s. That's when it started. Um, so you had exceptional real estate agents who were prepared to work harder, who were more skilled, uh, who simply just were naturally had natural instincts. Uh, you had agents whose earning capacity and ability to handle 50, uh, 10, 15, or 20 listings, that started to grow and grow and grow. 25 years ago and John worked out that if we could support them and, and perhaps have one or two people working their team maybe they could sell twice as much or three times as much and at this point was McGraw national or still within the eastern suburbs only when good yeah when I started with John he had one office which was Paddington his second office was in Cremorne which was slow to get going his third one I think ended up being in Leichhardt and then fourth one in Mona Vale or Palm Beach that's when it started growing but it was the head office in Eastern Suburbs, RJ, had the best of the best Eastern Suburbs agents. That was the flagship. You had the all-star of real estate agents back then in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so John was really, his profile was growing. He was on 60 Minutes and he was writing books and he was friends with, you know, he had clients like Kerry Packer, or Jamie Packer and some pretty hot, you know, act actresses. And, you know, he really... Uh, 
he really, you know, like I said earlier, he really added some polish to what the industry was back then. Why and how did you in Shannon decide to leave and what was that process like? You know, was there a lot of fallout? Was it, was it a big deal? Um, I don't think, it, I mean, look, we were the first of the agents to leave, but we we're also the youngest. Um, we were naive. We felt the environment was changing there because it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more offices. We weren't seeing John as much and probably no different to why someone ended up leaving Bressick Whitney five years ago. They were good. <laughs> like what we did got happened to us, you know? So it's the same thing. I think people just evolve and they want entrepreneurship. They want to go to the next thing. Uh, Shannon was kind of giving me a nudge saying, what do you think? And I'll, my loyalty was really with Shannon because I'd spent two, three years with him. Uh, we worked in the same areas. We'd had some meetings and I, I was like, yeah, that would be kind of good. So was it a big fallout? Uh, I don't think they're very, they're never easy when you're leaving an organization that you're doing well in and that you respect and they respect you. It's never easy. Uh, but I think we did it respectfully. And, you know, to this day, I still speak with John occasionally. Um, and it's just part of the industry too, like many others. Why, why does one football leave a club and go to another club? It's sad when they leave, but it's a new opportunity. There's a reason for it. Um, it's kind of a bit like that. But we're really excited. We started Bressick Whitney in 2003 in King's Cross. And um, our, our, now our sort of the next chapter started and our story started. Um, so it was really hard to leave. I, I found leaving John was probably the hardest thing because I knew how influential he was in the industry, how how much of a, it was a big organization to walk away from. But I was also really excited about, oh, wow, so me, you, me and Shannon could now have our own business. It's going to be called Bressick Whitney. And we've got clients and now we can do something. Yeah, I'll take that. So off we went. And was it immediate success? Was it a slog? Like what? Did you guys have a plan? Did you adopt things from McGraw? Were there things that you guys innovated in? What was that initial journey like? Uh, it was a slog. It was a slog. Um, but I would say that we were we were pleasantly surprised about our success. So I think we thought we would we, we thought if we could do a hundred sales in our first year, RJ, that would be great. Because we're both doing about 200 at McGrath, if you think about it. We're both selling about 100. So we thought, well, if we go start our own business, if we can do 100 and we keep all the commission, we should be too far behind. We're starting our own thing. And so we actually sold 155 that year, that first year. So well above our expectation. Clients took well to it. We, we certainly were far from figuring it out. I don't think, you know, it's one of those things you'd never really figure it out completely. Um, but... You know, it was it was exciting. It was really exciting because I was 21, 22, your friends, we have a good week, you have some beers out the back, some pizzas with the three staff you've got. And uh, yeah, it was daunting, but it, when, I, when I reflect on it, it was, it was a really exciting time too. With success comes, you know, as Jay-Z says, more money, more problems. Like with success... Did you start to change in any ways for better or for worse? Like, how did you start to evolve as, he, as an individual, as a human? I mean, now you're a young person coming into money, immigrant background. So, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily had lots of it. You were middle class, but like, this is new potential, new wealth in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Like, how did you start to 
evolve with with just within that context. Yeah, I'd, I'll, I'll, and you'll probably understand. Do you mind if I ask your your age? Yeah, forty one. Okay, cool. So we're similar age. I'm I'm forty four, turning forty five this year. But I mean, you'll probably also, um, you'll probably agree or have similar experiences like I did. Maybe or maybe not. I'll tell you. But I found in my twenties, RJ, um, I was pretty. I was great at real estate. I was good at listing and selling. I loved it. I partied. I enjoyed myself. Uh, I had relationships. Um, I started to travel a little bit. Shannon and I were still pretty focused on the business, so we never let it get too far away from us. And if you think about it, he was a country kid, so he had country charm. Uh, yep. And I, my father went through that accident, so I was reminded every day of what life life can change just like that for any of us. I was reminded of that twice a week when I went and saw Dad. So that sort of kept your level you know, my feet on the floor. I think I probably got a little bit lost in my t- later on in my twenties because the business was starting to have more success. We were, you know, we were in King's Cross, which, like you said, was at the epicenter of the good times. Um, I didn't really have a far a strong father figure, mate. So, you know, uh, work hard, play hard. Work hard, play hard. Because of McGrath and what was ingrained in us. It was one of those things, mate, where you just upgraded your suits, you upgraded your car every two or three years, and you upgraded where you lived every two or three years to something better. There was this thing which, you know, which had just been sort of, I don't know how it happened, but you were just, it meant that you were moving up a few levels and therefore you should just, and you just got used to, you know, moving up the ladder in material goods as well as you know how work was going so before you know it this car became this car became that car became that car the one bedroom apartment in bondi junction became two bedroom here becomes a two bedroom there becomes a waterfront apartment pretty quick and then comes a boat and then comes a second car which was unnecessary then there's the watch then there's the suits and then there's the aftershaves and then your first name basis with the tailor so that ha- that all happens unconsciously, I think. And I think it kind of, it's also a bit of a reward for the hard work. And you don't know any better because at that point, other people and other people in the industry are doing exactly the same thing. If anything, there's some competition with that. So, you know, all that was boiling up in the background. Um, and if I fast forward, because I know we haven't got all day, but I think I got probably to my early 30s and realized that that wasn't that didn't really make me that happy. All these things that I had, I was like, well, where does it go from? Where does it go from a Porsche to an Aston Martin when we're just selling houses? Where do you go from there? And and am I feeling any better now for for having that? You know, maybe when I drove the car out of the showroom and then after that, that dopamine wears off and you go, it's actually. I mean, it's nice for a little while, but it's. You start really sort of well. I did anyway. I started going. This isn't making this isn't making me as happy as I thought it would. <laughs> Lots of people ask that question to themselves and start to wonder about that, but not. I mean, very few actually seek change, particularly when they're there. Mm, like true. you know, like so. What takes you from being a person realizing that 
irrespective of what you accumulate, it's not changing the way you feel to actually deciding to step out of the matrix of success. Like, how did that happen? Like, because ultimately, as we know, you kind of removed yourself and and you left. Yeah. Like, what got you to that place where you were willing and ready to make that change? Like, was there a rock bottom moment or was it just accumulation or was it you meeting your, your, your wife? Like what took you to change? Um, yeah, that's a good one because I think a lot of people don't change and I still know a lot of people who still do that. Uh, and, and if, you know, maybe that's, maybe they're happy doing that. So I, I don't want to be critical of that. And I, I should say before I answer that, that it is a great industry. Okay, because I don't want to be negative on the industry. It is great industry, and I've loved it, and hence why I'm still in the industry. <laughs> like if I if I was anti-industry, I'd I'd be out to be doing something different. I had other options, but I do love the industry. But I think it, people can get misguided, and probably that's why I do what I do now. Um, and maybe we get to that. But having mentors and so on is so important. Why did I change? I felt a bit empty. Um, the business had incorporated a, a business coach and she was a life coach. I started working with her privately. I started meditating at 32, 33. Uh, I wasn't a big drinker, but I started to drink less. Uh, I had dangled with recreational drugs socially, and I started to do that less. In fact, that was starting to really make me depressed when I did do it on the occasion. Um, The business was growing. At this point now, we had four offices. We were investing a lot. The profile of the business had grown. So, you know, all these things were happening. We had 130, 140 staff. The responsibility was large. But I think the, the I think when I started meditating, RJ, I just kind of started to breathe more. I started to find a bit of stillness. I started to look at things a bit different. Oh, do you meditate? You do? Okay. Yeah, I would have thought you do. Yeah. So you you know like what what is meditation what's what does it do for you if I if I ask you that yeah so uh, different things but for me um it, it, it creates it creates space mm-hmm. uh, between me and kind of being lost in my mind body complex mm-hmm. right so for me meditation changes and how it looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I tend to go out in the yard. I, I live in the bush-ish. Like, like I, li- I do live in the bush. Yes. And I tend to go out and just sit and just uh, hold space and really let my body unwind. I hold a lot of anxiety in my gut because I'm just always in a mad race throughout the day to just nail out tasks and get a lot of shit done. So for me, it's just about settling and creating space between what's going on, becoming alive to facts, alive to reality, and not being so lost in my own thoughts yes. and emotions and, and feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and it's different for everybody. Like, I think we all experience a meditative state similarly, but what it does for you is probably different than what it does to me. And whatever. But we sim- we, I think we experience similar stillness and breathing, which is good for the central nervous system, which therefore gives us clarity which makes us feel better and it's like weights for the brain right so i think by meditating i started to slow down uh when you breathe i feel nothing like i'm nothing like i'm just breath from that moment on material things didn't really 
I didn't value them as much. And in fact, I felt like they were kind of bringing me, holding me back a bit, like they were quite heavy on me. Uh, so when I started to let go of some of these things, uh, we were going through a bit of a court case, which we won, which was a bit public. Um, and that was a bit annoying, frustrating, testy um, on the partnership. Um, you know, and, you know, photographers trying to, you know, take a photo of you when you're at work and claims. And we won the case. Um, we, we were never guilty. We were always innocent of what they were saying, which was underquoting. But, um, you know, I think all that and the public, um, the public interest in that, I think we probably deserved that public, um, what we were probably getting, um, because, now a lot of the public and the community were saying these real estate agents are making too much money. We're paying them 2% and they're throwing it down our face because we don't like them. We don't trust them. They're, you know, they're not being transparent. And not only that, they're driving past us in a Porsche. So I think I, I, I understood what the community was now, you know, things were changing. And now also social media come along. So real estate agents were also promoting their success on social media. So you've kind of got this thing where the public who don't know the industry don't like the industry because they've been lied to, cheated to, and think we're making too much money. And then you've got the agents who some excel higher than others and really work their ass off to work their way through the real estate ladder and in some ways feel that they deserve it and they've gained a profile from that and if they want to drive that, you know, that Lamborghini four-wheel drive, well, they're going to drive that because they feel they've earned that. And and so I think with meditation, it sort of taught me awareness. Um, I thought it'd be nice to be, a, I, had great, I had a great life coach who I will still work with today. And she would challenge me often and say, do you think you can be an inspirational leader and be more present without all the, the polish? And I was like, I don't know if I can, because it kind of goes with the title, doesn't it? And she would challenge me on that and say, yeah, but one of your values is humility, isn't it? And I'd be like, yeah, it is. She said, well, if one of your values is humility, you have to you have to own that and wear, you have to accept some humility decisions. And so the sports cars went, the boat goes, the three-bedroom penthouse goes, and I just started feeling better. Um, I think I had a better um, response and connectivity with my staff. I didn't feel like I was under attack by the public now because now I was just being more humble. Uh, I attracted better things into my life. I had less stress and things were on the up. So kind of that was, you're getting back to your question, that was the shift. And sorry for going the long way around, but that was the shift. No, and it's, we like the long way around. Well, <laughs> we want the long way around. again, like I said at, at, at the top, you know, I don't think it's that an amazing story, but there's some very valuable lessons in this story which i share with people because i think if i had someone like me or you in my life when i was 22 25 27 i, I think that would have helped me a lot i did it at that time i did it and that's why let me ask you this question yeah let, let me ask you this question Ivan. Mm. maybe it was maybe it is necessary or maybe you wouldn't have been so outwardly successful had you not had that role modeling previously? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like maybe if someone was teaching you humility too early, 
maybe the external success wouldn't have become or been so uh, important in many ways. Yeah, maybe. I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like, because I coach some guys who are 20 and 25, and all they want to do is be successful and drive a Porsche, and they will. Now, I can't stop them from doing that. I can only kind of, you know, put the mirror up and say, is that definitely what you want and what comes with that? And is that going to make you happy or is it the journey? Um, so I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I didn't. I found that I probably hung around the wrong people in my twenties, and I think if I had a stronger mentor, that I would have made better life decisions. Because I know that, like the decisions, the way that I'm guiding my twenty-year-olds, um, and not that I'm anything special, I'm guiding them on the mistakes I made, and also the things that helped me. So, if I had that, I know I would have that would have been very helpful in my journey. Because a lot of us make mistakes in our twenties; that's natural. But if you have, why is it that we don't really get strong mentors until we're in our 30s or 40s? Imagine we got them when we're in our 20, 22, 24, 26 years old. And some people do have that these days. Um, so I think it's interesting. But, you know, for me, that was, you know, that that's where it all started. I started to become a better leader. I started to spend more time with our agents. I probably cared less about selling 10 properties a month. Um, but I started to care more about this guy going from, three to six a month or from her going from one to five and that became very rewarding and satisfying so these things were happening um i've met my wife uh, i bumped into a friend of mine down at Woolamaloo, and he told me he was reading stoicism about stoicism which you know i'm sure you know about but just for your listeners yeah ancient you know 2000 old roman greek philosopher oh, there you go Roman Greek philosophy. Yeah, there you go. That's the journal. There you go. I'll come to that too because I've got that down. Um, and I, no, I, I, I didn't know anything about Stoicism. I'd obviously heard of Socrates, and but I'd never heard of Stoicism. And so it gives me a book, Ego is the Enemy. And as I'm reading Ego is the Enemy, I'm like, this is just connecting with me at a time in my life where I'm like, do I really want to be doing this in... I want to be selling house in 10 years and is ego a part of this and where has ego got me in trouble in the past? And then from there, I started reading other books. Obviously, I met my wife who was American. We met in LA. She came to Australia. She saw how hard I was working six days a week. Um, and, you know, she's a gentle soul. And my, my sister then got breast cancer in London because of all the other things that go with being on the on the treadmill, being on the hamster wheel. Um, she was in banking. She is, she's still alive. She, she, she was in banking, working with Citibank, heavy drinking, smoking culture, uh, entertainment culture, uh, very little stillness, very little health and wellness, poor diet, breast cancer. What do you expect? Um, so she survived, which was great, but all this was happening. And that's probably when I sort of started thinking, well, you know, what's the, and bearing in mind, like you said, I've got in real estate at 17, I'm now 42, uh, sorry, I was 40, and I'm like, I, I don't know anything but real estate, RJ. That's all I'd ever done. The only thing I had outside real estate was some really nice holidays, but it was real estate from 17 and a half, 18, with a suit and tie every Saturday until three and a half years ago. So I just started getting excited about what else I could do. Uh, it was nerve-wracking, daunting. 
didn't know, bit of discovery like you, like you said about yourself. And um, I made the decision to let my business partners know that I'm going to move on, uh, which wasn't an easy decision. But in hindsight, it was an easy decision because I was kind of done. I, I actually was done. Like I was probably done two or three years before. And so each year I was losing the passion. I was really having to push myself. It wasn't natural now. I was starting to look at my commissions, which I never did before. And that's when I was in a place where I needed to change. I'd stop learning. And so, yeah, yeah mate, that, does that explain kind of why? I... Yeah, yeah, 100, uh, 100%. I mean, I think you, you kind of get to a place where you've been there, done that, and from the outside in, people will have their opinions because they're judging. <clears throat> they're, they're kind of looking at what success looks like and uh, they're like, why would you leave that? But I think for people that have always been driven by the opportunity to be better and to grow and evolve through their craft, there reaches a point where you're not achieving that. And I, I've been there too. And I've worked with business partners that get super resentful because I end up doing more outside of my craft <laughs> to kind of sustain my learning and development, right? Like they're like, you're moonlighting. Well, it's like, I have to, because once I stop evolving, particularly with what's my main focus, I go into some weird places. So I am 100% with you. So we... We're now at a place where you're you're coaching and you're helping other agents. Ivan, what do you tend to find? Like, do you find that the agent of today, in in a generalized way, has evolved, or like the younger people coming through are they are they more holistic and more aware and conscious, or do you find that they're still struggling in exactly the same way that you were? And and I guess the second part of that question is. Why do you, why do they tend to come to you? Yeah. What brings them? To yeah. You? So I think the first part is it, it's a lot. I, I can't speak in depth about other industries, but I can say that yeah. most the real estate, 20% of most of our industry makes 80% of the income, the top 20%. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So the top 20%. Uh, all the agents that you probably know in Melbourne and Sydney, they are making the lion's share of the commission. Then you've got 80% of the industry making the bottom 20 or 30%. So the disparity between the really high earners and basically the rest is enormous. That's why you never see real estate agents as one of the best paid industries because the average pulls it right down. It pulls it right down. Yeah. But the top 20% are making more money than... A lot of lawyers, doctors, you know, tech, whatever you want to call it. Um, so who do I have today? I mean, look, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching because I think that's what's worked for me. We're all very weird and, you know, unique individuals. And that's why I think one-on-one's better. I don't think he, I can't do what I do as a group. I'm almost like a real estate psychologist, but I also work in performance and, you know, they're connected. Um, it's mindset, it's accountability, it's goal setting. What's going on with this guy's going on with different with this woman who's going on with different with this kid. Um, so two thirds of my roster, because I work with about 30, 35 people, two thirds of them would would write in excess of one and a half million dollars a year in excess uh, with two or three of my top guys earning sort of six million plus in commission. So they run big, you know, really good sales businesses within businesses or their own businesses. Uh, they're the people that I, you know, 
tend to spend most of my time with. I do have others who sell under 30 a year. Uh, that's also enjoyable. Um, they're typically Australia and America Australia. globally or no, just Australia. I'll just, oh. I do Australia. I do it online. I come back to Australia once or twice a year and catch up with people. But gotcha. yeah, it's much like this. Mate. Like we are online now. Um, there's email, there's text, there's Instagram that I follow them on. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a bit of a wide spectrum of, as to who I coach. Uh, there's always a bit of a wait list to get in, which is good, but I try not to overwork as well. That's why I left my, you know, I was doing 60 hours every week. Uh, now I live in Austin, Texas, like you, we have nature right behind me. Uh, I have a 10, 10 month old, I've got a dog. Um, I like my health and wellness. You know, I want to work. I don't want to not work, but I try to sort of help people on their journey. I think I'm good at it. Why? Because I've I've had a lot of success, but I've also made a lot of mistakes. I've also employed, I've been in a position where we've employed a lot of people, uh, and I continue to to learn, mate. Like I can't. I want to. You could I'll just quickly show you, but my library's down there. It's really full. Uh, I just finished the seventh my seventh book for the year today on the whatever date March it is. So I try to read as much as I can, just because I don't want to rest on what I know. That's great. But the world's always evolving. I read mostly nonfiction and, you know, just different things just to help me in my, you know, wisdom is one of my values today. And I guess that's where I find most of my wisdom from is is, is not just what I've learned from the mistakes and the success I've had, but from from books. Yeah. I saw you journal. You like journaling? Yeah. I do. I, I journal every morning. I, I use a stoic journal as well i i have a um kind of a, a practice of my own but stoicism really works yeah. well in with it because i'm i'm what would be referred to as an existentialist so i believe in change through action so my actions and the way that i've kind of orientate myself in the world through actions and being dictate how i feel see and um and kind of um Think, yes. right? So I don't try to change my thinking per se or, or my feelings. I try to operate accordingly in the world and have the right attitude in it. I tend to find by doing that, that, that changes my psychology. And um, so I love things that are very much reflective, um, action orientated, and um, because it kind of gives me a cut through, which, you know, like depending on stability within my mind is not always the right place so stability of how i'm operating in the world tends to be better for me so um yeah it, um yeah so i've been it really really valued our time and i know you're an extremely busy man and um you're you're you know i i really value the fact that you very much think through the shows that you go on you know you were we really questioning me as to what we would talk about and why and i really appreciate that because it shows that you put a lot of thought in what you do you're not just um there to kind of spruik a message you really want to make sure that you're you're kind of aligning with the right people and the right things so again i really thank you deeply um from you know my heart for your for your time we always close the show on one question um and that question is if you can leave our audience with a habit that is really important to you and that you kind of always engage with, what would that be? I know you probably have many, but something that is important. What I think is important for people in their journey. 
Yeah, habit orientated, but no, something you do, something that is a, a habit that's very important for you. That you would think. And by the way, we didn't get to talk about zero alcohol, which I would have loved to, but maybe another time. Um, look, I think it, it's it's to answer that question. I think it's a blessing and a curse because I'm a bit, I'm very much like you. Like, I'm very organised. I love working through things. Um, so, but so so the the blessing is like I love action. I love executing. I love action. I want to get things done. Um, I want to probably know what's next. Um, I've got my goals on front of me just here in my office. So I'm, I think that's a blessing. But I think the curse is, you know, it's hard. You know, I have to work at switching on. Um, so I think that's prob- it's just a habit. Like you were asking me what's my best. It's, it's, it's a blessing for sure. It's helped me succeed. It's helped me achieve things. Uh, I feel confident in my ability to, you know, resolve and work through things, whether it's a property-related thing or an acquisition or it's a, it's a coaching thing or whatever. But I think the curse is, uh, it's like if we go to a buffet, my cur- my, the curse is I put too much on the plate. That's, that's, that's the curse. Does that answer that? We didn't get to talk yeah. about zero so calls. We didn't get to talk about zero alcohol because I do think that that's very valid. And if I could, do you mind if, if we got 60 seconds? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, we're, we're advocates. Like I've been sober for 13 years. And, and so we, you know, we're massive advocates of no alcohol. So I'm keen to get your view on that too, man. I would love to before we finish up, because I think this is a really big one. And I, there's, there's people like you who've been sober for 13 years and 15 and 20 years and hats off. And I wish I was that. I've been sober. Uh, about, <laughs> I wish I was. I've been sober. And look, I, I, I never had a problem with alcohol. I was a social drinker. But this is important for social drinkers as much as these people have a problem with it. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Oh, it is, mate. I think this, there's a real big growing movement of zero alcohol going on around the world right now. Mm-hmm. I think it was cigarettes 10 years ago. Uh, and I think now is now you're starting to see alcohol and the damage that alcohol does to the brain, our sleep, and everything else in between. Um, so I think that, you know, coaching has been great for me because I meditated, I coach, I journal like you every day, I read a lot. But one, the last thing, or the most, the thing that I've sort of, the biggest change I made was just stop being a social drinker, which was 15 months ago. And I've got to say, life is 20% better. It's easier when you say no. I, did, I haven't missed a gym session in 15 months. I'm in great, you know, physical shape. Um, and I've just, you know, I'd, I'd encourage everybody. My wife hasn't had a drink for 18 months. There's probably 15 people on my roster who haven't had a drink this year. They all feel amazing. Like, How are you going? Oh, I feel great. I didn't have a great week, but I feel good. You know, I didn't have a good week in sales, but that's okay. I feel good. It's yeah. just, anyway. Yeah. You're a legend, mate. I love your work, and um, I do pick and choose where I go. Not because I'm not. I just I think if we don't, when we say yes to things, we're saying no to something else, and that's that's what Ryan's that's that's a Ryan Holiday thing, and it's true. So if I say yes, 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 yes to all these different events and things, that means that that won't be time that I can spend on my own craft. I've got a lot of books to get through, my health and wellness. You know, my time with my family, my son, walking the dog. I'm in a good rhythm. So it, when I'm in a good rhythm and I've got my sort of week set out, 
everything I say yes to basically just disrupts that rhythm. So it has to be worthwhile. You're a good bloke. That's why I did it. Thanks, Simon. I really appreciate that, man. I again, um, thank you for your time, and I'll have to catch up with you next time you're you're down in Australia. Yeah, too, mate. You're a legend, mate. All the best, and keep up the great work.